to you from Podcast Detroit. It's Heard, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Please take a second to subscribe on iTunes. And for future episode information and additional content, head over to HerdPodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at HerdPodcast. Welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to Herd through your Apple Podcast app, iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you get your podcasts. If you want to go one step further, write a review and let us know what you think. I'm Joe Hakeem, and tonight I'm joined by Vato. Hello. And our special guest, owner of Josie Wesley Tea, Joseph Wesley Tea, and the author of The Art and Craft of Tea, An Enthusiast Guide to Selecting, Brewing, and Serving Exquisite Tea. Joseph Wesley All. Joe, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Joe, let's get right into this. And tea is one of those things where I feel like people um, kind of take it for granted, kind of like coffee, right? And there, it seems to me that there, you're either someone who drinks tea every day and kind of goes about your day, drinks a cup of black tea of Lipton or something like that, or you're very passionate about it. What sparked your passion for tea? Well, that's, it's a long story. It goes back to 1992. Um, I was studying in Malaysia, and I was playing rugby on my college uh, team in Malaysia, and I played at Western Michigan uh, University as well. And at the time, I was only 18, so I didn't really recognize what was happening. But in the United States, you're in a rugby team. You play the match, and then, of course, uh, the, you end with all-night keg stands, 2, 3, 4 in the morning. Everyone's just getting pounded on beer. And it's, uh, that's how you build the camaraderie. And in Malaysia, I would end up at 3, 4, 5 in the morning at, at night markets drinking very strong, you know, very sweet tea. And so my relationships with my teammates in Malaysia were fundamentally very different than my relationships with my teammates in the United States. Um, then for the next 10, 15 years, I ended up traveling to uh, – lived in Ethiopia, Central Asia, Siberia. And I was kind of living in areas that were really steeped in tea culture. And in Ethiopia in 96, I was backpacking through uh, some very remote villages looking for the origins of coffee. And everywhere I'd, I would go, family would call me and they've never seen white skin. They've never seen, you know, oversized kind of American guy walking through the <laughs> village. So they'd call me in and uh, ask me to come in and drink tea with them. And I was frustrated because I kept on saying, let's have a coffee ceremony. I'm, I'm here for coffee. And they refused. They kept on giving me tea and I didn't understand what was happening. Um, and then in 2000, I was on a fellowship through Princeton to teach at a university in western China and at that time, I was living on the Afghanistan-Pakistan-Chinese border, and it was a really hot area. The second week I was there, this explosion went off, killed 300 people. Um, it was a, a politically unstable area, as we know now after 9-11, how, you know, what's happened in Central Asia. But that's where I was living. Um, and I was young, kind of naive, and very green, and politically very interested. So because I was there with Princeton at the time, I quit a job in the auto industry, getting paid pretty good money to go live in an area that no one was living in, literally no one was living in. Um, and so the Chinese, the Pakistan, everyone thought I was there with intelligence or that I was there somehow um, as a missionary, some, some ulterior motives. And so I started asking questions. I was interested in politics. And I was getting in, introduced to all, all these crazy things that was happening. I was having dinner with you know the Taliban, with Pakistani arms dealers. 
um, which was all very exciting and fun. And then the winter came. And so I was right just south of Siberia. It was very cold, one of the most isolated areas in the world. It became minus 40 for days on end, just brutally cold, extremely dirty. And um, it became dark both literally and then figuratively. It became, my mind became very – I mean all of a sudden it went from being like I was in the middle of some – espionage movie to just having no context and no, no understanding of what was going on. And I, I really just kind of psychologically hit my limit. And I got kind of really scared. There was no one to go, you know, turn to, no one to talk to. And so my outlet uh, happened, just became tea. Um, some of my students, I was teaching at the university during the day and at night, I was teaching um, some business students how to teach, um, just how to speak English. And they realized that I was really getting fascinated with Chinese traditions and tea. Um, so the, they started bringing me extremely nice teas, started educating me on, on the histories of teas, and I just became obsessed, which is part of my personality anyways. Um, and so when I started having vacations and time off, I'd travel inland into China, and I started looking for the origins of some of the world's best tea, and I just became obsessed uh, with tea. I came back. This was 2000. Um, I didn't think the United States was quite ready for what I was discovering in China. Um, and then in the last 17 years, things have really changed here. Pe- people's palates, people's interest. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, even in the coffee world, people are no longer interested in dark roast. They're interested in light roast and, and they're drinking. Essentially, they're trying to make tea out of their coffee. I mean, they're talking about, you know, these just the subtleties of coffee. And so all of a sudden, four or five years ago, I realized where the food industry was headed, I think, or I thought, you know, North America was finally ready to really discover, you know, what started the English empire, which, which was tea. Before getting to tea, let's just say the first eight years here sounds like a movie that <laughs> needs to get made. I mean, that is just a ridiculously exciting uh, story. Uh, and I, I, is that in your? I, I know we're probably going to talk about your book. But is that in your book? That's the no. first eight years because that's. I mean, I, I don't know. I, doesn't that sound like extremely yeah, exciting? It sounds like, fascinating. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's fascinating. There's there's a, there's a sorrow to it. I mean, all of this is really we, we're going to see how well you guys are at asking questions if we can unpack all of this, but. Uh, uh, there certainly was a wanderlust. I mean, going back to 1992, even you know now, there's I'm getting over it. You know, I'm, I've passed my mid age and I've settled down a little bit. But uh, there certainly was, um, there was always a curiosity. You know, I was looking to very extreme places to try to satisfy these. Curiosities. I, I was 18 and 92, and I certainly wasn't uh, backpacking and uh, discovering teas or coffee or anything. I just that's I was drinking it, but uh, that's very exciting. I. So, yeah. so let let's go back to the um, the the, cer- the the idea of ceremony, right? Tea ceremony. That very, and I don't want to. I want to go on a limb and say like most Americans probably aren't familiar with a traditional tea ceremony, right? And so you said you were going through Africa looking for coffee, but people were inviting you to their homes and sharing tea with you. What what does that mean to a family outside of the United States? What does sharing tea mean with someone, especially someone who they don't necessarily know? Tea is uh, – for the Chinese for 3,000 years, is, uh, you know, the meaning of tea is life. So by giving someone tea, you're, you're sharing in life. I mean you know, there is a symbol. If you go to the Middle East, if you go to Central Asia, Southeast Asia, Africa, I mean the, what the gesture of giving a guest tea is you're sharing part of your life with, with them and you – know, then you would sit down with with a table full of food and you'd spend hours just kind of sharing the moment you know in a in a very rich way and, and so w- w- why why tea like why tea like, has, has why has tea made this kind of imprint on culture 
I can only guess, but I, I, the Chinese introduced. I mean, tea comes from China first. I mean, we a very very small area in the world grows tea. Even today, with the expansion of the empires and the, the plantations that have been planted, there's still a very small area of the world that can grow tea. But the Chinese were growing it as a medicine, as something to revitalize your life. I mean, it, it really was something they were they were drinking. So, if you look at the origins of of tea, some of the technological breakthroughs that they had in the last three thousand years was to take this leaf that had essential vitamins and minerals to sustain your life and they were able to manufacture it in a way that they could preserve it, much the same way the Europeans did with their, their uh, brandies, with their wines and their beers, taking these calories and preserving them for the winter the Chinese were doing with tea. just happens to be that the drugs that they were preserving were much different than, than alcohol. It was caffeine and then it was all these essential vitamins and minerals. So if you were a, a farmer in China and you had tea – with a little bit of rice and some tea, you could live forever. I mean it really is in that way than the elixir of life for the Chinese. And through the last thousands of years, that symbolism was just kind of – it's now packed into all of our subconscious. Was there anything that they didn't have with tea or is it always something that you experienced that the tea went with everything that you guys did? Can you, can you repeat that question? Did tea go with everything that you did in terms of food? Was there always a tea accompaniment? Um, you know, much as today we might have, you know, we start off with water at the restaurant table. Did you always like start off with tea or did you always end, up, end with tea in your meals? Yes. Yeah, so there, there's two different ways you would approach tea. Um, in China today, you would always have hot water and it's just nice to put a little tea in the hot water so that it doesn't just taste bland. Um, Chinese have a lot of superstition with water temperatures that you would never drink cold water because your body temperature is 96 degrees and then it... You know, it has a killing effect if you were to try to cool that down with cold water. So they will only put warm liquids in their body. Um, but when you're drinking tea, especially some of the teas that I deal with, kind of the arist- aristocratic teas, the bourgeois teas, very rarely do you have anything to eat with that. Then the ceremony of drinking tea is just tea itself and then the interaction with, with the people that you're at, at the table with. How, how do you – you talked just mentioned aristocratic kind of uh, bourgeois tea. What, what do how do we how does that break down? Like th- there's obviously um, quali- levels of quality in tea, like anything else, right? Um, it seems to me that the stuff we get at the grocery store for the most part um, is probably pretty low end. Um, to, to I mean, maybe even calling it tea is being uh, generous. Um, so how do how does one even go from say a, a mass produced brand to something really special? That mass produced brand that we're all familiar with, if you ever go to the Krogers or Myers, that's a really recent phenomenon. So what happens, and this is kind of why I exist as a company or why I'm able to exist today. Hundred years ago, those teas that we see today or think of teas, kind of the the milled powders uh, that come in tea bags. Um, that happens because the Chinese cut off trade with the, the Western world. As the two opium wars take place and the English try to completely destroy the Chinese uh, culture, over 75 percent of the Chinese population became addicted to opium throughout the 1800s. Um, and the devastation that the British uh, created by trying to break the Chinese monopoly on the cheese, uh, tea trade, that ended up with the uh, Communist Revolution and they shut the borders. Uh, to outside trade, which meant all of these huge multinational companies worth billions of dollars primarily because of the trade of tea uh, 
had no more tea. Uh, so what happened is uh, in Sri Lanka, they tore down a lot of the rice fields of the Sri Lankans and pl- started planting tea. Um, coffee had disease running through Sri Lanka at the same time. Uh, so they converted a lot of those coffee plantations to tea. Uh, the English were in control of most of the South Asian con- um, continent, subcontinent with India. That became planted as plantation. And so you quickly had these factories come out of nothing essentially starting in around 1850, 1860 is when India first started or the English first started planting tea in India. And so for the next 40 or 50 years, the English spent all their energy on creating these huge plantations. And by huge, I mean it's, it's a model that we don't even understand in the United States. You can stand on top of a mountain in the Himalayas and as far as you can see would be one estate. And that's how it exists today. I mean all of, all of your Darjeelings, there's 86 estates. And it would take you a day by car to go from one end you, you know, of Darjeeling to the next. And it's just nothing but tea of these 86 plantations. Do, do they um, – do they similar to like the way they change wines and stuff, do they do grafting and, and whatnot and make hybrids of those types of leaves? That's, that's constant. And that's okay. – um, can we come back to that in just a second? Yeah. I was going to go to the evolution of where we're at kind of in the market today. Absolutely. So the other thing is tea. Um, tea was only – being sold to the wealthy, even in Europe, because it's expensive. The transportation was long. Logistics would take six months from the time it was picked. It would have to be packed on um, horseback and get um, brought from southwest China to the ports in the east. Um, and the whole process was just very time and labor ext- um, uh, extensive. And everyone in, in uh, Europe knew that tea was a, a, a prized commodity worth quite a bit of money. So if, if you go to any museum, you'll see these uh, tea wares. In fact, the DIA just had a beautiful exhibit on just this. Uh, where porcelain, you know, we have things called China now. All these dishwares were being created, a teaspoon. Um, all these new industrial arts were coming because of this fascination Europeans had starting in the 1600s, 1700s with tea. But as soon as they lost trade and they moved their model from uh, just exporting from China to actually developing and growing themselves, they could really reduced the cost and the scales just ramped up. And so all of a sudden there was a huge supply of crap tea from areas that aren't necessarily the best areas for growing tea. So what they would do is they would start blending, um, not only leaves from different estates, but then also you can blend with flowers, herbs, spices. Because um, if you have a, the quality of a really bad tea is bitterness and astringency. So the dry mouth that you get when you drink a tea a lot of that can be masked, of course, with milk, fats, and sugars uh, to coat your mouth so that the astringency and the bitterness doesn't affect your mouth in a negative way and you don't notice it. Um, and then also with the fruits and, um, and the dried fruits, the dried herbs, the spices, all of this masks all the, all the off flavors that were coming from these really low-quality teas. So today what we have is a result of just that. You can call it tea. And that gives you, you know, the panache on the market where people say, "Oh, this is fancy," and you can give you know, uh, ask for more money. But by putting in all of these other things, so chamomile, for instance, chamomile, you go to Egypt and it's you just get a, a kilo for just pennies. It's dirt cheap. Stick it in a box, call it tea, and then you can charge quite a you know quite a bit of money for that. Is there is there anything else? So what makes a tea? Like, is, I mean. Is it just a leaf from a specific? It's a plant. Tea plant. Yep, Camellia sinensis sinensis. Okay, um, which is an evergreen 
that uh, is indigenous to the Himalayas, lower, lower hills of the Himalayas. And is that a caffeinated uh, it, from the get-go? It is caffeinated. Okay. In China, they would, uh, as far as the written record is, they would um, primarily steep it in hot water like we know it today. And then in India, in the state of Assam, so right on the Bangladesh border in the northeast, uh, in the 1850s, the English f- found uh, the indigenous there chewing the leaves, much as you see with chat throughout kind of the uh, Indian Ocean, the Red Sea area. Um, the different narcotics that so they're chewing it in the same way, just breaking off a, um, a branch from the tea bush and then chewing in the leaves to get you that caffeine kick. So for the uh, stuff that we have now, does any part of that original tea leaf have to be in teas? And I'm using air quotes here. Teas for it to be called tea. Is there any kind of regulation for that? None. 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 In. in you, you know, I challenge anyone listening to this who's interested, go to your local grocery store and there will be an aisle or half an aisle dedicated to tea. There will be coffee on one side and tea on the other side. Largely, tea is, has a larger selection than coffee. And it's very rare to find a box labeled tea that has tea. So, And then so based on that, though, anything that we have that's herbal, that's non-caffeinated. That's by definition wouldn't be a tea. Would not be that's a tea. Right. So what would you call it for being a purist maybe, right? What would, what would purists call it? Well, I don't have a problem calling it tea okay. because people, there's pushback and then you sound snobbish. But this is the, – the French have the word tisane, T-I-S-A-N-E. An herbal tea is an English way of describing these things. So there's a tradition everywhere in the world of taking native plants, steeping them in hot water as medicine. So if you have aches, if you – Rashes for for whatever there you know every area in the world has traditions of herbal medicines and those are teasings. I see. Okay, so then you can add whatever you want. You can add valerian and make your sleepy time right. Valerian chamomile and all that make your sleepy time. No matter what brand you're picking, you throw that in. Have no caffeinate. I mean, that's why it's not caffeinated because it doesn't have the tea leaves in it, right? Correct. Uh, Green teas. Then well, green teas are so all tea. Green tea, white tea, black oolong, dark teas. Those types of tea all come from one leaf, and the only difference in those types are the way they're processed. Okay, so we because you go to uh, a lot of restaurants and you get this, you know, uh, you want some green tea and you feel like it's a different class than a black tea, but you're saying it's the same leaf <coughs> processed differently. Processed. So, what's the? I mean, without getting too technical, I guess what's the major distinction between that? Because there's this a huge flavor difference. Huge, um, infinite flavor differences in these types of teas. But this is once you understand what I'm about ready to tell you. At least for me, this is where my obsession kicked in. Once this went off, so for three thousand years, the Chinese discovered this thing that had two drugs that were worthwhile: caffeine, which we all know is a psychotropic drug that gives us energy, and then thionine, which is another psychotropic dr- drug, which is essentially an anxiety inhibitor. So if clinically you think of anxiety as the inability to focus in the present, so your mind is wondering about, you know, when is this podcast going to finish? What, 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 did were, I, what were you saying? I was yeah, totally wandering off there of Thionine essentially puts blinders on all those and lets you focus. So it gives you what tea drinkers call the tea high, and it's very apparent when you drink good tea. You get the energy from caffeine, but unlike coffee, you get a focus. So you feel it's euphoric. Uh, you'll feel like you want to write, you want to be productive because you, you, you're no longer distracted with things you have to do. You're just in the moment, uh, which brings us back to kind of these traditions around the world of offering people the tea and how engaged you become because as soon as you start drinking tea, 
all you know after 20 30 minutes your mind literally changes and you become very focused and the conversations become much more deep and much more rich and to be clear this is this is true tea this isn't like have a couple lipton and like you're going to start writing uh Correct. you know crime and punishment you you you're talking about like true tea whole, yeah. yeah okay yeah so in the, and then the the second you're talking about uh the anxiety inhibitor? The thionides. Yeah. So thionine and caffeine are found in all tea and oh. it depends. So if you're drinking, let's say, I don't want to beat up on Lipton because to Lipton's credit, they actually ser- you know, sell tea. It's just, it's milled. So the tea that I would sell is full leaf, hand-picked. You go to the plant, imagine a holly plant. You know, it's another um, uh, evergreen, kind of brittle like tea becomes. You pick the leaf and that leaf is whole. And everything is then done by hand to keep that leaf whole, which is part of the beauty and the art of t- making tea. If you're a savvy business person, you don't really care about all the effort it takes into keeping that leaf whole. You care about volumes and increasing your volume. So what you're going to do is you're going to pick every leaf, whether it's the most young, delicate, delicious leaf or if it's the oldest, most brittle leaves. You're just going to take everything and you're going to stick it in a mill and you're going to ground it up into a powder. And then you're going to stick it in a tea bag. Once you start taking all that brown matter and all those brittle old leaves and you mill it into a powder, you've taken a lot of matter that is not the actual tea or that it's been on the plant for so long that it no longer has any of the chemicals that make it unique and you've just taken all of the all the pleasure out of the tea. So the, um, I want to go back in a, in a second to the black-green distinctions, but uh, for those that are milling the teas and putting them into the bags, do we – I, I know from the boxes that when you buy teas at the store, they have a shelf life. But what is an average shelf life of a tea, whether you go to an artisanal type place and you buy it loose and you get it in a tin can or you go and you buy a box of the bags and it says, OK, this expires in a year there. How do you determine what is an expiration from that? Just generally, mm-hmm. green, white tea or unoxidized teas, which we'll get into soon have a very short shelf life, three to six months from the time they were made. So this is in China. Once they're at, you know, on the factory floor being made, you have three to six months before you start having a very serious drop-off in quality. And that just simply means that the taste will no longer be as strong. The aromas will not be as pronounced. Uh, your will the caffeine properties be the same? That won't change. That won't change. That okay. Won't change. So your semi-oxidized and your oxidized teas, your oolongs, your black tea, your dark teas – they will have a much longer shelf life. So one of the one of the benefits of oxidizing a leaf um, is that you're increasing the stability and the sh- shelf life of the tea. So black teas, one of the reasons I package black tea is because it has you know two, three, four, five year shelf life. Now, with this said, uh, there's a a big movement in the last five, six, seven years of having aged white tea. In fact, we're introducing a an aged white tea right now from 2009, and I used to really be avidly against this whole phenomenon thing was just marketing uh, and then this last year I was uh, for the harvest in China somebody shared with me this 2009 white tea which blew my mind and then I've taken this back so there was a, a huge change in the way the tea tastes and the way the tea smells and it was also a huge improvement I mean it became so sweet and this, really was sublime. this a loose tea that you infused or was this a milled tea that- all no no all I only so for me and my my interest in tea isn't isn't really selling commodities but it's finding the best best tea in the world and introducing it to North America so like a so in this case then the tea that you had 
it would be a loose tea and that would have a longer shelf life than a milled bag tea or, or does there depend? Well, historically, I would have said no. But now, okay. now that this – having had this white tea, I, I will say, well, <laughs> maybe. And so what, are the, what is the aging kind of parameter? How do you know that a tea is made for aging? And maybe this goes down the same path as wine because you can't age all – I mean 90-some percent of wine is made to drink fresh. Right? Correct. So is tea the same way? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so the Chinese have a category called dark teas. Dark teas are fermented teas. So after they've been processed into a green tea, they would inoculate it with uh, funguses or molds and or they would allow it to naturally – Like kombucha? No. These are the the leaves. The the actual leaves. So they take like a saline solution, mix it with fungus and then they'll go in a huge warehouse, huge area and spray it and inoculate it with this fungus. And then this is done – to allow it to age. Um, and so the, the molds and the funguses protect the leaves, and then they also mellow uh, the flavors, completely altering the way it tastes um, and smells. But this then is collected. So you, you can go to Shanghai, Hong Kong, and there's actual banks, tea banks, where uh, connoisseurs and collectors of very old, rare teas, these dark teas, will store their teas under perfect condition uh, because their value is, is Enormous. So for me and for those listening who, you know, amateurs at the tea world, but we go to an artisanal place, they have a bunch of loose teas and they're like, you know, you smell them and you're like, oh, I, that one smells good. May, it may like it, whether or not it's real tea or if it's herbal, uh, some type of herbal or some type of other thing. Do I ask them at that point then, hey, what's the, how do I, uh, what's the shelf life? Or do I just guess that maybe... Uh, don't keep it in that tin for over a year. You, you could always ask, but you're going to put that merchant in a in a predicament because no one's going to want to say we have, uh, you know, two year old green tea on our shelves that it's probably not at its peak. Uh, so the best way to do this is the way the Chinese do it, in in my opinion, and that's um, your oxidized teas are warming, and this is kind of st- strange uh, metaphysics, uh, Chinese metaphysics. So your body is constantly in flux between needing cooling and heating. This is the Chinese. I'm, I'm, whether I'm, I'm not advocating for this. But oh, no, no. I totally agree. In the daytime, you need, you need warmth. and the nighttime, you need to be cool. Or, or let's take watermelon. Now it's hot, humid day. Eating a cucumber, eating a watermelon. These are cooling foods, and they feel delicious in the summertime. Hot, humid. Wintertime, not necessarily. But a steak in the middle of the winter uh, tastes delicious. Coffee in the wintertime. Black tea. Soup. Fall time. Soup. All yeah. of this taste. I mean, your body just naturally understands certain foods taste better in the summertime, certain foods taste better in the wintertime. Teas have similar properties. So your oxidized teas, your uh, oolongs, your black teas are great for wintertime because they're really warming. In fact, if you drink black tea in the summer, you just start sweating. It's like coffee. You know, here in Detroit... Unless it's iced, right? (laughs) Well, even iced, it's ridiculous. (laughs) I, I drink a cup of coffee in the morning and I'm just a sweaty mess. It's just instant sweat. But these non-oxidized teas, your white teas, your yellow teas, your green teas, make really start cooling you. So even if you drink a hot cup of green tea in the summertime, it's, the effects are, are wonderful. So when I go into a store not knowing who the vendor is, their merchant, not feeling comfortable to ask these really direct questions, I would always approach it in just what season I'm in. If it's summertime, I would always get a green tea, a white tea. Wintertime, I'd go to the oxidized. And it happens that the green teas – Almost all teas are harvested and produced in April, end of March, beginning of April. And so if you go three, four, five months out of that, those are your summer months anyways. So if it's a, you know, a tea that was harvested this year and you follow this Chinese rule of thumb, you're going to have a tea 
that is has, has not been expired. I, I feel really good. I just threw away all these teas I had in my in my tea drawer. Right, I, they were all in these tins, and I swear to God, this is no BS. I had them for years, just sitting in, I, and I did it with my spices too. I, I every now and again I'll purge, and I was like, you know, I need to purge my teas, and I start going through, and I have all these great tins, and they smell great, and I'm like, you know, I had them for years. Something, I mean, if if Lipton, you know. <laughs> Right, which I don't have any Lipton, but I do love myself a you know a Lipton twenty ounce iced tea now and again, right? But if Lipton has an expiration date, clearly some of these other teas have to have an expiration date. So I purged everything that I had except for like four boxes that you know said that uh, they were okay, and I got rid of all my loose teas. And I'm like, all right, well I'll just go find something, and maybe this time I'll buy it in smaller batches, uh, knowing you know this kind of information here. All right, I had no idea about the seasonality of teas like that. One of the uh, – you mentioned the, the idea of harvest and um, the kind of – earlier on you talked about your interest in politics. And I feel like there's a intersection between these kind of large uh, commodity-based uh, industries like, like tea, tea, right, and, and the kind of um, – the people harvest, harvesting them and, and like how they're treated and, and how these things kind of uh, intersect – on the on the label, even uh, we see fair trade all the time. We see uh, organic and these types of labels. Um, what do you know about uh, how the the people harvesting and the people uh, operating these tea? Are they, they're called plantations, correct? In tea, India, they're plantations. plantations. Okay. In, in China, there'd just be a village. Village. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, is there any type of mine paid to that? Maybe not on the large scale. On the large scale, I understand profits are, you know, most important for your tea. Do you try to learn about the people harvesting or even the people operating the like owning the fields and stuff like that? Yeah, well, but not for those reasons. I, I could care less about the designation of fair trade and all the politics of food. I, I really find distasteful, and it's really infuriating, especially because I'm dealing with China and China lives in a world outside of our understanding. So all these concepts make no sense. But I'm interested because that's what I get out of it. I mean, what, what does that mean? Like, what is it that, 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 that these concepts make no sense? Are we so f- we're imparting our understanding on their culture, which shouldn't necessarily? Yeah, I mean, you know, China's a socialist; it was communist forever, and so there is no land owned by anyone. So the okay. idea that there's a large corporation, you know, with slave-like labor doesn't make sense. Because these villages have existed for thousands of years growing tea because they were growing it for themselves and for the market, Chinese market, not really for the world market. Um, But it just happens that they had proprietary techniques or they had created a cultivar that was renowned and that people wanted. And there's incredible wealth that goes with tea. So the Chinese tea that I sell isn't really made for the world market because the world doesn't pay for tea the way the Chinese do. You know, Chinese pay thousands of dollars for you know grams of tea. Here we pay a dollar ninety five for a hundred tea bags. Wait, a thousand dollars per gram? Well, no, for grams. I Meaning we gra- we brought over. We had a, a tea that we brought over was three thousand dollars for a pound. Three thousand dollars a pound? Yeah, that was about uh, what three hundred hundred fifty two hundred servings. Really. Yeah, and so this wasn't. Uh, I mean, it was ex- of course an expensive tea. You go to Shanghai during the harvest. Um, especially when dragon well green green tea um, Longjing is harvested in your normal grocery store, which we would think of as a Kroger in your suburbs, they had 
10 different grades of Dragonwell green tea, the starting price for a kilo was 150 US dollars. This is your Kroger. I mean, this, you know, so the amount of money that these villages are getting for these teas is enormous. You know, I laugh. People always talk about the poor Chinese and picking these teas, and I'm, I'm picked up in Jaguars, BMWs. <laughs> you, you know, and there's an incredible amount of wealth in these small villages. Um, similar with Japan, you know, Japan has very strict labor laws. Uh, their minimum wages are far higher than the U.S., and so it's a little awkward to go to Jap- uh, Japan uh, t- tea farm and start advocating for fair trade when the country I'm coming from has, you know, their labor laws are so much worse. You know, so, right. so it's a lot of this is just politics making pe- people feel good about buying stuff, and the morality of consumption to me just starts getting a little distasteful. You know, really for me, what's wonderful, you know, the more you can celebrate the craft and the legacy and the history that went into this tea. You know, to me, that's a much bigger payoff than teaching them how to market their their tea with a, a label that I pay five hundred dollars to put on the box. And and so the the idea that, but can I interrupt? Yes, there is a there there is there is something now now in all these old British and Dutch and French colonies. This is a different case. In fact, this is a really interesting time to be talking about tea. Uh, for me, maybe not for you, because the Gorkas right now have completely stopped all tea production in Darjeeling. Darjeeling is not making any tea all season, and this is billions of dollars being lost because the Gorka is looking to create Gorka land uh, and trying to have their own independence. And this is, I mean, a monumental time right now because the amount of money that the estates, these 86 estates, were getting for their tea as they were learning to market their tea directly to consumers in North America, Canada, Europe, Australia, their prices were going higher, but the, the workers were not seeing this. Um, and so w- when you start talking about conditions, usually the, le- the European legacy and the, the, you know, the, the places where the Europeans have touched and kind of it, you know, changed, that's where all, we have to kind of pay attention to what's happening. But in Japan, China, a lot of these Asian cultures that, that have stayed clear of a lot of that interference, uh, I, I, sometimes I think we can learn more, more from them than, than they can from us. And, and so your, your kind of uh, journeys through – uh, through China, looking for tea that that you brought, you, you would import here and sell to um, American consumers. Um, how, how did you go about figure, figuring out which cheese you wanted to bring through, bring back with you? So the Chinese have every village has different teas that they're known for, um, but they have ten, a list of ten classic Chinese teas, the most revered teas. So I started going to those villages, looking for the best varieties I can get within a reasonable price that would make sense in North America. Um, and from there, I started creating a network. So once I have those villages, relationships – so five years ago, I had certain relationships that I developed back in 2000, of certain villages of teas that, I was, that interested me. So this is like if you were a, a red wine drinker, you'd go to Burgundy and want to find the Grand Cru's. And then you become friends with the makers of the Grand Cru's and then they, they agree that – They'll let you export some of their red wines into America. So the similar thing happened to me in China. I was interested in Longzhou, so I go to Hangzhou, go to the West Lake, start meeting with families who are making this green tea, find some that I like. We get a relationship. They trust me enough to bring some of their nicer teas here, and then I start selling it. Once I had the classic 10 classic uh, teas, I, you start – in the tea world's not very big, especially – when the Chinese start realizing you know something about tea and then you're, you know, you're, you're approaching it with appreciation, not just as a money-making scheme, 
Uh, and that starts opening doors. So you meet people just on the road in different villages. They invite you to their home, to their, to their village. And, and I, every year I go for the harvest. I meet with the makers that I've been you know, meeting with and then I try to uh, increase by one or two village every year. So I'm just every year building the base of relationships that I have. It has, and has your have your offerings grown as well? Like yeah. In terms of- yeah. So we have um, seven black teas that are packaged. Those haven't changed. Though that's kind of the base of the brand. They're packaged black teas. Um, and then every um, season we bring seasonal teas over. So every three to four months, there's one, two, three new teas that are introduced. Very limited edition. I only bring about ten kilos of that over is what we give to restaurants, cafes, and then I sell it online. I don't package it. Um, and that those offerings are constantly changing. So it's very frustrating for restaurants to work with me uh, or, or delightful, I guess, depending on how you look at it. Because every time they call me and say, Joe, you know, this tea everyone loved, can you have more of it? I say, no, but I've got another tea that everyone's going to love. And so it's constantly rotating based on um, what season it is, as well as what the harvest was. So I'm I'm traveling very long distances from these different villages, and the conditions at each of the villages are going to be different. It's an agricultural product. Some are going to have droughts. Plants are going to be destroyed in hail. The snow damage. There's seasons that get too much water, too little water, and so based on where what area has better harvest than other, I'm going to start bringing teas over from from the the harvest that I I like. When you say you work with the restaurants and cafes locally, like do, do you have any say in how they present your teas? Yes and no. Um, I don't offer tea bags, so you know, in one way, I, I have a say in that they're getting loose leaf bulk tea, um, and I, I try to push and nudge in different ways. Um, so there is a Chinese style of making tea that I love um, in a vessel called a gaiwan adds a little bit of ceremony. And so I spend a lot of time reminding chefs and owners that, you know, if people see some of these ceremonies, it's just, it's kind of a seductive way of producing, you know, showcasing tea. And I find that the cafes and the restaurants kind of follow my lead and just kind of trust me that um, it's proven to be successful. So yes and no. Some just have their own, you know, thing. They're like, we got teapots, we'll put your tea in our teapots. Um, which works, and then some, you know, after working with me for a year, two years, kind of start getting a relationship, understanding that what they're serving is very different, and how they see that is the one, you know, one to two percent of people who come through as tea drinkers, their mouth drops and say, "Holy shit, where where this come from?" And then they start, they they'll come back to me and say, "We're getting some positive feedback." Well, and I, and I feel like if we travel down this path a little bit, like the the hospitality side of this is that. When you bring in a special product, you treat it in a special re- in a special way, right? So this tea isn't like your everyday run of the mill tea. So if you if you as the proprietor of this tea company suggests, you know, I suggest a ceremonial kind of um, presentation, um, the owner should kind of consider that and respect that, and also charge a premium for that. Yeah. Well, so how, how I introduce that to – there's some people who are just stubborn and they say, you know, this is not how we do it. We do things. We own five restaurants. We know what we're doing. And then you start pointing them to Los Angeles, New York, and San Francisco and you start showing them some of these restaurants are charging $250 for tea service, table side. And it's not one or two restaurants. I mean this is happening and I say, you know, we <laughs> these things are happening and you happen to have a resource in town, you know, able to put you on that level very quickly. Mm. So uh, – 
so your stuff would then go into a uh, pot, the teapot at these restaurants that would have an infuser, like an, uh, at the top of it, right? That's traditionally how they do it. So my preferred style is, uh, in English, you'd call it flash steeping, a very small pot, okay, um, less than a hundred milliliters, um, but high volume of tea. But very quick steeping. So I put a lot of tea in a very small bowl, and I steep it for three to five seconds. Wow. Uh, so for the average consumer, is there a garden variety temperature that they should have? Like, you know, as a person at home, maybe my mom or something, she put a kettle on, you know, get it to its boiling, pour it into the cup, you know, with the tea bag, let it sit for two minutes, and then we're done. I mean, you want the real answer or you want the marketing answer? <laughs> I, I want them both. I'm like, what What should people do? Why are people doing what they're doing? I know we're kind of running short, but, you know, there's there's a reason that people did that. I'm sure it's a marketing thing, like you said, but what should we be doing and why are we doing what we're doing? So the catechins, your, your antioxidants, um, are very bitter, very astringent. They leach out at very high temperatures. So normally, you're unoxidized. So, so part of the process of oxidizing, you, you degrade your amino acids, and part of your amino acids are your antioxidants. So by degrading those, those catechins, you are making it easier to put more heat and extract more, more aroma because you don't have to worry about the negative effects, the, the um, astringency and the bitterness. The unoxidized teas have those chemicals still in them. So the marketing way of answering this would be saying 160 to 175 degrees for your whites and greens because you don't want to flush out all the catechins and you don't want it to go bitter and you don't want it to go astringent. Whereas the oxidized teas, you don't have to worry about that because part of the oxidation process was to degrade those chemicals that have those negative effects. And so you can push the aromas and flavors through heat just like if you're a chef, you know, the more heat you put onto something, the more, more flavor and aroma you're going to develop. So the same is true with tea. The more heat, the more that malty characteristic of the black tea will come out, stronger, more rich aroma. So for the black teas, you can go 195 to you know, boiling at 212. But the truth of the matter is a good tea can handle heat. Um, every village in China has their own superstitions about tea or, and, and heat. Um, and this is a very long-running argument in the tea world, within connoisseurs, within villages – most villages, though, in China, you go down, you sit, and they're giving you a, a nice ceremony. They'll put boiling water. They'll let the water sit for a few minutes, drop it down, I'm guessing, to 205, 200 degrees, and they put it on the leaves regardless of if it's a green tea, a white tea, black, or oolong. For how long? Again, in this process, in the, the way that I do it, just for seconds, the flash steeping. So the, a traditional Chinese way for, you know, it would just be for seconds. And then we would steep that one handful of, of tea for 10, 12, 15, 20 times. So if you and I are drinking now, and I'm sorry I didn't have uh, tea with you, but you have your doers on there. <laughs> you got scotch. And, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we, we would spend hours just with the one bowl of tea just continually to steep it. Oh, okay. So how much of the – have you guys figured out how much of the caffeine properties you lose every time you steep it? So, Again, it, all of this depends on temperature, depends on the quality of the leaf, uh, the organic material that the leaf grew in. Um, is, so, it, is it like a super steep downhill slide of like caffeine? No, you it's, start off you know high and then go lower. No, it's the same percentage every time you steep it. So okay. let's say you're, you're extracting forty to eighty percent of your all of your chemicals in the first steeping. The next time you're going to extract forty to eighty percent of whatever's remaining. So it's a 
you know, an inverse exponential curve. I, what's this? What's that called? Uh, so no, I get oh, it. So I, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. <laughs> so, there, but I, yeah, I don't know what's called for consumer math. For consumers at home, whether you're using and, and maybe this answer differs if you're using bagged or you're lo- using loose teas. For the consumers at home, should they be reusing their teas every time that they want to have a cup of tea? It's up to their. I mean, this is a taste issue. Normally, a tea bag's not going to last more than one steeping. My tea, yes. I mean, the reason you're going to pay the premium price is that you're going to spend hours re-steeping these leaves over and over and over again. And, what, and let, let's be clear: your, your, your tea isn't the premium price isn't that far outside the range of. Uh, I mean, I, I know what your tea costs, and it's not that far outside the range of what people pay. Our package teas. Your package teas. Right. So yeah. some of, I mean, when we get thousands of dollars for a pound, it's well, much higher than what people are paying for tea. Yeah, and I was gonna, I wanted to make a comment earlier when you, when you mentioned that, like, you know, we're, try, we're sourcing teas at, at Accurades right now, and um, we're looking at $9, $10 a pound. On the high end, I mean, so, uh, on the very high end, like for, for this importer that we're working with is maybe $20, but you're talking... How, how do you – so do you have some of that tea that you sell right now, like some of that like $1,000 a – We don't package that. You don't package – but you, yeah. you do sell it like – you will sell it as like a loose – So some of our specialty teas we have right now are going for $15 for 25 grams. 25 grams. So that's roughly uh, 12 or so – Servings, yeah, anywhere from three to five grams. So, oh, three to five grams. Three to five grams. Okay. Would you say the same thing for herbals? No, no. So you have to do that different every time because herbal teas are are going to be shot after the first time. So really, herbal. I mean, it's like you know, mint. If you pick mint in your garden, you stick it in hot water. You're not going to be able to stick those leaves back in hot water again. Got it. Is there a uh, certain ounce that a perfect teacup should be? So no. A certain amount of water. No. So again, the Chinese way that I, I prefer, we drink out of one ounce cups. And they're designed, they're open at the top, so they cool the tea down quickly. Okay. The cooler, the, like much like coffee, the cooler it becomes, the sweeter you can, and the more you can taste the, the subtle, subtleties of the tea. Um, and it's, so it's a one shot. So you can put the tea all in your mouth at once and it hits all of your taste receptors in the back of your throat and the side of your cheeks and the front of your tongue so that you can get the balance between sugars and salts, which is what you, you'd be looking for in a tea. Well, and, and So in terms of all of distilling all of this knowledge down and kind of you, you focused it into a brand, to, you know, to Joseph Wesley Tea, um, how, how, do you, how do you convey this message to people? I, I, it was a couple of years ago, I think I was at a uh, – a tea um, tasting you did at uh, was it Salton Salton Cedar, yeah, yeah. Eastern Market, yeah. Um, and I learned a lot then, and I think we were we might have been tasting green teas at that point. I'm not positive; I, I don't remember exactly. But um, even even in the, that that short period of time, it was it was very informative. Um, but you lose your ability to talk to the consumer when you're on the shelf. How do you how do you convey this, and and how do you get people to kind of make the leap and um, and purchase and spend that extra money? It's it's a real problem. So I we actually did a pivot maybe a year ago, and I don't really push selling to grocery stores at all anymore. The packaged um, containers really I do for festivals. You know, there's a lot of following we have, especially in the coast, who are you know very loyal followers of RTs. Um, 
but there's a lot of labor, there's a lot of cost, and I can't do, as you said, I can't teach people about tea on a shelf, and it's miserable because I'm stuck next, next to all these other brands that people have been buying for 30 to, five, 30 to 50 years, and they said, why would I spend $15 for 50 grams of tea when I can buy my 150 bags of Red Rose for a two two ninety five, And it's just an incredible amount of energy it takes to convert someone like that to, to my teas. So I, I essentially quit. <laughs> um, and the restaurants have been great for us because a lot of – well, certain restaurants. When you have the right chef and the right ownership group who are really dedicated to understanding food and understanding histories of food and are really passionate not just about making money or – you know, selling a nice aesthetic inside the restaurant, but really educating their their patrons. Those people hear about these teas, taste these teas, and then they get excited because this is now an you know value added for those types of restaurants. Uh, when they come down and, and they have a, a very rare whiskey collection, and they've spent a lot of time in their wine, and they're sourcing their their beef from the best cow farmers, and all of a sudden they realize maybe there's a disconnect when I have this little wood box of just shit tea. So now they say, wait a second, we have the same stories, if not greater stories, and an even more diverse range of teas that we can start educating, and then they get very excited about it. And they find that the more they start educating their customers, the more the customers start appreciating it. And in turn, you know, I can ride the coattails that way, and then people start finding out about us because on the, on the menu, they'll say teas are sourced by you know, Joseph Wesley from Joseph Wesley Tea and – that's could, been great could, partnerships. Could you name some of those restaurants that you work with right now? Yeah, so Selden Standard down in Detroit, the Chapman House out in Rochester, um, Toast in Birmingham, Ferndale have just brought it on. The Lady of the House down in Detroit, Kate Williams' new place has a signature Darjeeling that she's going to be serving from us. Um, you know those types of places. So w- one more time, where can people find you online? And uh, josephwesleytea.com. and then uh, your book. One more time. Is The Art and Craft of Tea and sold wherever books are sold. In fact, it's now translated into uh, Italian, Japanese, and what are we now? French. That's awesome. So all, all the bi- bilingual speakers in, the, in your audience can get it in their language of choice. Awesome. Joe, thanks for being yeah. with us. Yeah, thanks very, for having me. Very great conversation, Joe. Until next time, dine well, friends.